The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. All right. Let's go ahead and and pray and ask God's blessing on our time together in his word. Father, we thank you for the great treasure that we have in your word, that your words are words of life, even as we are inundated with so many words now about trouble, distress, difficulty, even death for so many. Lord, what we need is more of you, more of your word coming into our minds and filling our hearts, being lived out through our lives, that we would bring that same life to others, that we would be able to shine as lights and that your word would guide and direct us as a lamp to our feet and a a light to our path. And so, Father, I pray that this morning as we have this time together in study, that, Holy Spirit, you would come and you would help apply this word to our hearts, that you would change us, that you would work from the inside outward, that you would mold and shape us and conform us more and more after your own image according to your word. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, we ask that you would accomplish this in our time together this morning. We are grateful for the technology, grateful that we are able to see each other and even to hear from one another. I pray that the technology wouldn't be a distraction for us this morning, but that we would be able to fix our attention upon you. Reveal yourself to us in great and marvelous ways this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As thinking about foods, as, as we're studying a passage, Mark chapter 14, that is, is about food, and I was thinking about food for the Bronson family, and a few favorite foods for us, or maybe not even favorite foods, but a, a few memorable foods for us, uh, caramel rolls, huckleberries in oatmeal, and deep-fried Twinkies. And I, I say that they're not favorites because a deep-fried Twinkie has only been consumed once by one individual in our family. But each of these foods really stirs up memories for us. In the Bronson household, when we talk about caramel rolls, we're talking about Christmas morning because it's one day of the year that we have caramel rolls in our home, and that's on Christmas morning. And huckleberries in oatmeal. Well, that would mean that we're camped out up in Elk Cove, and on our hike up the day before, we picked huckleberries along the way and stored them up to be able to put those in our oatmeal around a campfire up at Elk Cove in the morning. And a deep-fried Twinkie, well, when you're 12 and you're in Omaha, and the waitress finds out that it's your birthday, that's what she brings you for your dessert when you're on a road trip with your dad. So each of those foods for us really brings memories and brings us to special occasions in the Bronson home. And really, I think that's a biblical thing. Not that Deep-fried Twinkies are a biblical thing, but these remembrances by foods. Because all throughout Scripture, we see God orchestrating, God ordaining these different meals, these different feasts that would be celebrated by his people. And it was, it was more than just about the food that they were eating But those foods pointed to something even greater and beyond. They were reminders for them of things that God had done in the past. 
And they were also really promises of what God was still yet to do. And so throughout Scripture, the people of God are told to remember certain times, certain seasons, certain occasions and events, and oftentimes that involved the eating of a meal. Well, this morning we're looking at a passage that deals with Passover. And Passover, this is the people of of Israel eating a meal that really wasn't just a typical meal. It wasn't something that they would have uh, on a regular week. The elements of the meal were different. And then even the way that they were told to eat this meal was different than they would typically customarily eat one of their meals. But God did that. God made those differences in this Passover meal to provoke memories for the Israelites to draw them to thoughts about God's guidance, about God's provision for them, and how God delivered them out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. So the celebration of Passover really had great significance for the Jews. That that might even be an understatement to say that it had great significance for the Jews And in our passage this morning, which we're going to read here shortly, we see Jesus celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, full of meaning, full of memory. But then he does something remarkable. He does something surprising. He takes this meal that's been celebrated by the Jews for thousands of years, and he gives new meaning to it. Instead of those caramel rolls thinking about Christmas Day, now those caramel rolls are going to take on an entirely new meaning for these disciples. This Passover meal is going to take on an entirely new meaning. Jesus, in this, instead of looking back to Egypt, he begins looking ahead to the cross. He makes this a meal of remembrance of the deliverance that he would bring through his death. And we see in this passage Jesus coming as this final Passover lamb. And in that, he inaugurates a new covenant through his sacrifice. So let's start out here by reading in Mark chapter 14. And we're going to read verses 12 through 25. That's our passage that we're studying this morning. So I'll begin reading in Mark chapter 14 and verse 12. This is God's word. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new 
in the kingdom of God. So the first thing that we see here in this passage, in verses 12 through 17, we see Jesus giving his disciples instruction about preparing the Passover meal. So we read in verse 12, the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. So this is this is the beginning of the Passover celebrations. And the disciples are wondering, where do you want us to go? What is the plan for preparing the Passover? And so Jesus answers in verse 13, sending two of his disciples and saying, Go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you and follow him. Now, this is very similar to, if you remember, before the triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11, where Jesus sent disciples ahead and told them you would find a colt that's tied. It's never been ridden before. And you're going to go and you're going to bring in it. And if anybody asks you, you just say the master has need of it. And the disciples went and they found it just as Jesus had told them it would be. And so here, it seems that there's, there's more going on than just Jesus making a few prior arrangements. You're going to go into Jerusalem during this time of Passover, where the city was so swollen with people, uh, Jewish historian Josephus records that years, years after this, there were well over two million people in the city of Jerusalem for the uh, Passover. So you're going to go in to Jerusalem, and you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. Now, in all of the hustle and all of the bustle and all of the crowds of people, you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water, and you're supposed to follow him. And then he's going to lead you to a home, and there you're supposed to inquire about this upper room. Now, I don't doubt that maybe Jesus had made some prior arrangements with the, with the owner of this house, but I think there's, there's even more at play here because Jesus is looking ahead, looking into the future, even seeing what his disciples would see, seeing what they would encounter. And he's speaking about these events. This is what is going to happen. Well, the disciples were, maybe anxious isn't the greatest word, but, but they were ready to get the Passover prepared. This was something that for devout Jews that they practiced regularly. They, they wouldn't miss a Passover celebration. And now here they are. Jesus doesn't have a home. Uh, so Passover was to be celebrated in Jerusalem. And they're beginning to question, what's the plan? How can we go and how can we make these preparations? Because Passover is a really big deal for the Jews. In fact, I want to take you back to the book of Exodus. And so if you'll flip in your Bibles, we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 6. Let's start back there in Exodus chapter 6. In Exodus chapter 6, now, God's people have been in bondage, in slavery to the Egyptians under the hand of Pharaoh. Their lives are very difficult, hard labor, making bricks, even bricks without straw, as Pharaoh even tightens up on them and makes their life even more difficult. And as God is speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, I want to read verses 2 through 8 for you. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people." 
And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So here we see in Exodus chapter 6, first of all, these words of promise that God spoke. These events that had led up to this. And God says, even though these things have happened, these different events have transpired, that doesn't mean that my purposes have slipped or that my promises have failed. No, he begins by telling Moses, I am the Lord. And God had revealed himself to Moses as the Lord, as the I am If you remember the burning bush account, I am the Lord. And I've made these promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I've entered into this relationship of covenant relationship with them. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to deliver my people Israel out from Egypt. And I'm going to bring them into the land that I promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And their words of guarantee, they are based on the, the person of the Lord, on God's person. He starts in verse 2 by saying, I am the Lord. And he ends this statement to Moses in verse 8 with those same words, I am the Lord. You can count those words as good, signed and sealed by God himself, I am am the Lord. I've said it. I will do it. It's based on me. Then if you flip ahead a few pages from Exodus chapter 6, let's go up to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 records the first Passover for us. Now I want to read a portion of this for us this morning. Beginning in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, In the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial for you, a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And so there we see this this first Passover being instructed, this instruction being given to the Jews about what they were to do. They were to take a lamb, And then on the 14th day of the month, they were to offer it as a sacrifice. And then they were to kill it and they were to take it 
and eat it that night. This Passover was so significant for the Jews that it really marked the beginning of the year for them. Their calendar would revolve around Passover. It shall be for you the beginning of months. And this is the first Passover. Israel, as they were enslaved in Egypt, they were about to be delivered. God was going to strike down the firstborn in every Egyptian home. And then seeing the blood of this lamb applied to the doorposts and to the lintel of the door of every Jewish home, every Israelite home, God would pass over that home and it would be spared this judgment. The Egyptians wouldn't have the blood of that lamb or the blood of a lamb applied to their homes. And so, as God went through the land of Egypt, the firstborn of their homes would be struck dead. Israel was delivered from that by applying the blood of their lamb. You can read also in Deuteronomy chapter 16, their instruction is given once again about Passover. It was to be done in Jerusalem. God says, in the city in which I determined, which ended up being Jerusalem, it's eaten with unleavened bread because it was to signal the, the haste, even the readiness. The Israelites ate the first Passover meal in, waiting for their deliverance out of Egypt. Their belts on, their sandals, you know, their sneakers were laced up. They had their, their staff in their hand. They were ready to go. And so as they ate this Passover, they knew God has promised this. We need to be ready because he will fulfill what he has said he will do. And when we eat this and now God comes through, we're going to be leaving Egypt. We know not when, but we need to be ready. And so they were. So for the disciples, you can see why it was that, that they saw this as so important. Jesus, where would you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus gives the instruction to them, and he sends them out. And then as we continue reading in Mark chapter 14, in verse 16, the disciples set out. Luke, in his gospel, he tells us this was, was uh, uh, Peter and, <laughs> I just forgot the other one, Peter and John, according to, to Luke's gospel. Uh, the disciples, verse 16, set out, they went to the city, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So they go, they see everything, everything is accomplished just as Jesus had said it would be accomplished. And now they are preparing the Passover. They're making sure that the room is entirely ready. They're making sure all of the elements for the special meal are prepared so that when Jesus comes with the rest of the disciples, that it's all ready for them. And that's what we have in verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And so now they're here all together in this upper room and ready to begin this Passover celebration, this Passover meal. So in verses 18 through 21 now, we have the next section of this passage that we're studying. And we see that as the, the Passover is now prepared, they begin eating this Passover and Jesus announces a betrayer. Look with me, if you would, in verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful. And to say to him one after another, it is, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, in our home, we sit down at a table. I'm sure it's much the same in your home. We sit down at a table. We have chairs 
And that's how we, we eat our meals. And we read here that Jesus and the disciples, they're reclining at table. Now, that doesn't mean that they had lazy boy recliners and that they just bellied up to the table and pulled the handle and laid back with their feet up. No, the custom was that they would lay down head toward the table. It was a much lower table just above the ground and that they would lay more on their side, leaning in with their feet going out away from the table. And that's how they would eat these meals. And so here they are, they're laying on their sides, their heads toward the center, their feet pointing away. They're engaging in this meal, this significant meal, this special meal, this Passover meal. And Jesus speaks these words to them. Did you catch it? Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. That would have been like a bomb dropping and exploding. They're there in fellowship with one another. They're there sharing the intimacy of a meal and a Passover meal at that. And Jesus says, one of you, one of you in this room is going to betray me. And even to make it to a greater degree, not just one of you here in this room with me, but one of you eating with me. Now, it's one thing to betray another. That's a terrible thing to be a betrayer, but even more so to betray one with whom you shared a meal. In the minds of the disciples, that was unthinkable. You see, to eat together, this was a show of friendship. This was a show of commitment as we're sharing a meal. We're linked together. A a meal being shared together was something that would bind people together. This was significant. This was important. This is why all throughout the Gospels you read about scribes and Pharisees, people questioning Jesus about who he would share a table with. In Mark chapter 2, verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with who? Sinners and tax collectors. They said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because for Jesus to share a meal, to eat together with sinners and with with tax collectors was in a way joining himself to them. It was commitment. It It was friendship. And so here they are, the disciples around this table, sharing a meal. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Verse 19, the disciples then, they begin to be sorrowful. They realize just how terrible. They're grieved. They're they're distressed over news of this betrayal. And look at what they do in verse 19. They begin asking him one after another, Is it I? Is Is it I? I think that's a show of humility that the disciples begin questioning themselves. They're not pointing the finger in suspicion. I bet it's him. I I bet it's him. It's the one across the table. I can see he's looking at me a little cross-eyed. He's he's glancing at Jesus a little crooked. It must, must be him. No, they're saying, is it I? They're questioning themselves. I've heard humility being defined as having a right assessment of yourself. Having a right assessment of yourself. Not thinking more of yourself than you should. Not thinking less of yourself than you should. But having a a right assessment. Here, Judas knew he was the one. But none of the others knew. None of the others knew, and so they suspected themselves first. And I I think this is something that we should commend the disciples for, that at this point 
in time. They didn't start doubting or questioning others first, but no, they knew their own weaknesses. They, they knew their own frailties, and so they started questioning, and they started coming to Jesus. Is it I? Is it I? But notice also, from the other side, none of them pointed the finger to Ju- Judas. He knew he was the one. And even when he went out, when Judas went out from this meal, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly, the disciples still didn't know. They thought he was being sent out on an errand, get more things for the meal, or go make an offering to the poor. They didn't think that he was going out to betray Jesus. Judas was an absolute hypocrite. He was traveling with Jesus. He was traveling along with the disciples. He was step in step with them all along the way. He was one of those that was even sent out by Jesus when all the disciples were sent out preaching. He was even entrusted with the finances of the group. Nobody ever suspected Judas. And I don't say this as a commendation of Judas, that he was really a stealthy guy. No, I say this as a warning. Judas probably thought, I'm getting away with it. Even when I'm sitting here in this group, reclining at table with Jesus and the rest of the disciples, and Jesus even announces to all of us that someone's going to betray him, no one's suspecting me. No one thinks it's me. Nobody knows. At least that's what he thought. I don't know if you ever experienced this as a child, but I remember occasions where I, along with my two sisters, would get lined up for questioning, right? Something had been broken in the house, or some cookies were missing, and Nobody was admitting to it. And I'll just say it was usually my fault. But we'd get lined up and we'd, we'd get questioned. And I always figured I, I can get away with this. I can, I can be convincing. I can fly under the radar. Nobody's going to suspect me. I, I've wiped all of the chocolate off of my lips. All the breadcrumbs are swept away. Nobody is going to know. But those things always caught up to me. Eventually, those things do always catch up. And even if for a time I could deceive my sisters, even if for a time I could deceive my parents, I knew, and I still know, there is no deceiving God. God sees all. God knows all, and not only our actions, not just the things that we do, but he even knows the thoughts of our minds. He knows the intents of our hearts. Seth had mentioned in his teaching last week that Judas's slide, his transgression, was probably slow and gradual. I think that's right. I don't think that Judas signed on as a disciple knowing I am going to betray Jesus. I'm just just getting in right here at ground level so that I can carry out this terrible deed off in the future. But little by little, he drifted. Bit by bit, he strayed away and got further and further away from Jesus. Little by little, he didn't see these consequences immediately, so little by little, then he grew in his disobedience. I think little by little, he probably grew in his boldness of sin. and get away with more. I can do more. He was driven by greed. I say this to us, church, because God sees all. God knows all, 
These things do eventually catch up to us. And so if there is a sin that needs to be confessed, do so today. Don't put it off. Don't think, oh, I can get away with it. Nobody else knows. Paul writes to the church in Galatia in chapter 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Judas was sowing deceit. Judas was sowing disobedience. Judas was living out hypocrisy, and soon he would be reaping grave, grave consequences for his actions. The disciples are grieved, they're sorrowful, they're coming to Jesus, asking, is it I? And Jesus says, it's one of the twelve, one who's dipping into the dish with me. And verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. That's what Judas was sowing for himself. That's what Judas was laying up for himself. Woe. Better for him if he had never existed. Better for him if he had not been born. This is really an incredible verse, one that shows Judas's guilt and condemnation. For Jesus to speak words of woe, these are words of doom. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Judas would bear the guilt. Judas would bear the responsibility of his actions. Judas was fully responsible for these things that he was about to carry out. I want you to see this, church. As Judas is preparing to carry out these evil deeds... Jesus speaks these words of woe. There's no way around this. There's no other way of seeing Judas as being fully responsible for what he was about to do. Judas isn't innocent. Judas wasn't a victim of circumstances. No, Judas was responsible and Judas would bear his guilt. Do you see how incredible this verse is? Verse 21 is, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. We have here the prediction. Ahead of time, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This is something that God had put in place before time. That God had started out his plan of redemption, that he knew what he was going to accomplish. And the Son of Man, Jesus, these things were being accomplished according to God's plan even as recorded in Scripture. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. All throughout this passage, even, we've seen 
these these breadcrumbs, we could say, of sovereignty, these breadcrumbs of, of providence, of God orchestrating, God working out in the details of human life. Sending the disciples ahead to Jerusalem. You're going to see a man in this crowded city. You're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. And you're to follow him. And you're to say to the master of the house where he goes in that we're going to use the upper room. And it's going to be all ready for you. These breadcrumbs of sovereignty, these breadcrumbs of providence, that God knew what was going to happen, that God was in control of these circumstances. This is foreknowledge. This is control over the affairs of God's creation. Even Jesus speaking about his betrayal, these are things that are going to happen, even knowing who it was that would betray him speaks of God's providence and that God works all things out according to his will. Church, you simply cannot read scripture and, and not be convinced that God is sovereign. You can, cannot read scripture and not see how God accomplishes his purposes. He's working out his will. Even in a book like Esther, where you read through that whole account, and never once do you see or read God. God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. But that does not mean that God is not present. In fact, the whole story of Esther shows God's providence, that he is working behind the scenes. Even when his people don't realize it, God is working and he is carrying out his purposes, that he is accomplishing his will. In the book of Esther, you see the fingerprints of God all over. And even in our lives today, even in our current circumstances, look around and you see the fingerprints of God all over. God is working. God is in control. God is accomplishing his will. This verse, really, verse 21, I think is so incredible. It, it, it builds my confidence in divine inspiration. Because I don't think a human author, merely human author, apart from divine inspiration, would write such a thing. If God did not lead this to be written... These two ideas that seem like they, they can't fully reconcile. And in my mind, they can't. They don't. I, I can't quite connect those dots all the way. But God isn't limited by my mental capacity, my knowledge, my foreknowledge, my, my, my knowledge of things past, present, or future. No, no. God is able to put these things together, to, to work these things out. God is sovereign. He's working in providence. He is working to carry out his purposes. But then also we see Judas responsible for what Judas was going to do. You see, God's providence does not negate the responsibility of man does not negate, in this case, the responsibility of Judas. Even where man carries out evil deeds, God uses them to accomplish his will. But that doesn't mean that God is responsible for evil. It doesn't mean that man is innocent for what he's done. Judas couldn't stand before God and say, but God didn't. Didn't I accomplish your will? Someone had to betray Jesus, so I went ahead and did that. Wasn't I simply accomplishing your will, just acting in, in what you had laid out before me? No, Judas was not innocent. Jesus speaks woe to him for these words that he, for these works that he would do. He would bear the guilt. He would be condemned. He wasn't just a, a pre-programmed robot going through what God had put in front of him. No, Judas was 
a human being, acting as a, a, a free moral agent, making these free moral choices, and would be responsible for those choices and the consequences for those choices. Do you remember back in, in Genesis chapter 50 with Joseph in Egypt? How his brothers betrayed him, wanted to kill him, settled instead for just selling him as a slave. And after all this is brought about, and the brothers come to Egypt seeking bread, seeking salvation, if you will, because they were going to die because of famine. And Joseph is able to say in Genesis chapter 50, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, I, I think with these teachings, we, we can tend toward either dismissing them altogether or we give disproportionate weight to one and not the other. But these things we need to hold in, in a proper tension. God is sovereign. God is working through providence. God is working in providential ways to carry out his purposes to accomplish what he has promised. And humans are responsible. We may not be able to make complete sense of how these things are, are reconciled, but God is able. And I think wrestling over these scriptural teachings will really impact our, our theology, and that's theology with a capital T, our understanding of God as we wrestle through. What is our understanding of God then? It's going to have great bearing over our Christian lives as well. It's going to be evident in our prayer or maybe in our lack of prayer. doesn't matter because if God has ordained something, what can we do to change it? No, that's not what Scripture teaches us. That's not how Scripture teaches us to live our lives. That's not how Scripture teaches us to interact with Him or to interact with the world around us. Not determinism or fatalism. No, but that we would be seeking God, that we would be drawing near to Him, that we would be depending upon Him, that we would be looking to Him to work in our lives in such a way that, that we are able to live our lives as pleasing to him. It's going to be shown in our conduct, whether we live in a way that's in accordance with the gospel, in a way that is glorifying to God, or if we just falsely believe that thoughts, words, deeds, they don't matter. They're inconsequential. No, this verse, verse 21, would tell us otherwise. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Then lastly, in verses 22 through 25, we see this Passover celebrated. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. As they are engaging in this Passover meal now, Jesus is giving these new meanings, new significance to these things that they had grown so accustomed to. New meaning to the elements of the meal. These ordinary elements, the bread and the wine, these weren't things that were specific. Bread and wine weren't specific to the Passover meal. This would be part of daily life for the disciples, bread and wine. For thousands of years, the, the bread that was eaten at Passover, it pointed back to Egypt. 
It reminded them of the Exodus. But now Jesus, in giving this bread to the disciples, he says, take, this is my body. This was new, brand new for these disciples. Something they would have never considered before. We're we're taking these elements of the meal, but now they they speak about Jesus' body. And as we we take of the, the cup, the cup speaks of his blood. They drank it, all of it. And he said to them, verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Part of daily life for these disciples, bread and wine. These would be a daily reminder for the disciples of Christ's sacrifice for them. Never again would they sit down to a meal without thinking about Jesus' words and deeds. Never again would they be able to have bread and drink wine, and not think about this Passover that they shared with Jesus, and how Jesus was looking ahead to what he was going to do on the cross. I think originally every meal for the disciples would have served as a reminder of this meal, and would have served as a reminder for Christ's sacrifice. Every time they had bread, every time they had wine. Do you remember As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The church then moved to a a weekly celebration of this. On the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, that is Sunday, the day of his resurrection. They would gather together, they would share this fellowship meal, this agape meal. And in that, they would remember what Christ had done for them. And that's why for us as a church, when we are gathering together on a weekly basis, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday morning, we're taking and we're remembering what Christ has done in the bread and in the cup. And Jesus gives instruction to his disciples about these elements that they were taking In verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant. Oh, those words for the disciples, those words for Jews would be packed with meaning. This is my blood of the covenant. All throughout scripture, we see God is a God of covenant. He joins himself into relationship with his creation, with us, with you and with me, with with sinners. And he does does so through covenant. That is this relationship and and God meets all of the, the requirements of these relationships. In Exodus chapter 24, after, after the law was given, all the people are gathered together. Moses offers a sacrifice. An animal is slain and they take that blood and, and they throw it out over all of the people. It was binding. All throughout Scripture, God binds Himself to us in covenantal relationship, and He Himself guarantees that the conditions of the covenant are met. You see this with Abraham when God enters into relationship, into covenant with Abram. Breaking covenant. They took animals and they cut them in half. And Abraham fell asleep. Yet God accomplished. God fulfilled. God met the conditions of the covenant and established this covenantal relationship with Abraham. Which then continued on. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This covenant, it's a covenant of grace because all along God is the one who is accomplishing. It's not our works. It's not what we have done. Abraham wasn't the one that went through those sacrificed animals. No, he was off on the side snoozing. And God went through and God said, I will be the one 
to accomplish this. It's based on me, on who I am. Even as we think back to those words we read earlier in Exodus 6, God began speaking to Moses, I am the Lord, and he reminds Moses of the covenant he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And that he would fulfill his promises. And then he closes there in Exodus 6 verse 8, speaking to Moses by saying again, I am the Lord. Our God is a God of covenant. And the covenant is a covenant of grace because God is the one who will do it. It is based on him, on his characteristics, on his attributes, on his accomplishments. And here, as Jesus is taking the bread and taking the cup, we see the greatest act of grace in covenant spoken. That Christ himself would shed his own blood for salvation, for redemption, and for deliverance of his people. The Jews, the Israelites, they would take a lamb and they would slay it. For the Passover. And Jesus is saying, no, it's my blood. Not an ordinary lamb being applied externally to the doorframe of a home, but no, it's my blood offered as the perfect and spotless lamb, with his blood even being taken inwardly by drinking, not applied externally. This is the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant. This is what Jeremiah writes about in Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. As the author of Hebrews writes about not the blood of goats and calves and bulls, these things which cannot take away sin. No, this is the blood of Christ, which is perfect, which can accomplish what those animal sacrifices could never do. Not just a temporary covering over sin, but by Jesus' blood, the removal of sin. That though our sins are like scarlet, we shall be white as snow. That Jesus died for our sins. And he's saying here, as he is giving new meaning to this Passover meal with his disciples, this being really the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper, the bread speaks of my body, which is broken will be broken for you. The cup is my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus concludes in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. All all of these things that, that Jesus has been speaking to his disciples about betrayal, about death, all of these things that were going to be changing for the disciples, their heads must have just been been spinning. And things seem like they're getting worse and worse and worse. He's going to die. He's going to be betrayed, even, even by one of us, one who's sharing a meal with him, even now. But Jesus speaks these words of comfort, these words of assurance that, yes, he would be betrayed. Yes, he would give his life. But there would be a day when he would 
drink again of the fruit of that vine, drinking it new in the kingdom of God. Though Jesus would die, though Jesus would be the ultimate Passover lamb slain for the sins of the world, God's knowledge and control over circumstances, Jesus says that even though I will die by the hands of sinful men, I can still look forward to a future day after my resurrection when we will all share together in this marriage supper of the Lamb. John records that for us in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, this marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus knew his death was not the end. He knew his death was a means of salvation, the only way of salvation for you and for I and for every sinner ever born. He came as the final Passover lamb, inaugurating this new covenant through his sacrifice. He was preparing his disciples for his death, and he put in place this meal of remembrance, these meals of remembrance. Even maybe you in your family, you have meals that are, are significant for you, meals of remembrance that trigger certain thoughts for you. Well, there's none greater than the Lord's Supper. There's nothing more significant than when we join together and we take the bread and we drink of the cup and we remember what Jesus has accomplished for us. In eating those elements, taken back to this greatest display of God's love for us, Christ dying as a sacrifice for our sins. So perhaps even today as a family, as you share a meal together, take time to remember Christ's sacrifice for you, the giving of his body and the shedding of his blood to redeem and to reconcile you to God. I'm grateful. That doesn't even describe that word falls so short. Eternally grateful for what Jesus has done for us, what he has provided by his death. And that we can continue to remember this week by week. And, oh, I look forward to the day when we can join together again as a church family where we can worship and sing together. Where we can partake of these elements together once again and remember that we're united in Christ by his body and by his blood. And how that even speaks to an even greater day when we will all be together with all saints from all of history around the throne of God, worshiping and celebrating and knowing we can only do so because of Christ's sacrifice for us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these truths would be working in our hearts, that if there's any hardness of heart, that it would be softened by your great love for us, the great sacrifice that was made for us, that even while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us, that, Father, you sent Jesus to be the sacrifice, to reconcile us to you, that it's something we couldn't accomplish on our own, that we could be right in our own way, it's impossible. No, only through what Christ has done for us. Father, continue to bring us back to the cross. Continue to bring us back to what Christ did, that we would truly be gospel Christians, preaching this to ourselves each and every day, and with every remembrance, every meal even, that we would remember it is a show, a display, a remembrance of your grace and your kindness toward us. Not just to give us food, but to forgive our sins. Thank you, Father, 
for your word. Thank you for our time together in study. And again, Lord, we pray that this time of separation would soon pass, that we would be able to join together soon in worship, shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand. Lord, until that day, continue to work in us, work through us. We even pray especially for this home that's being offered and prepared for use, Lord, by our county, that it would be a place of mercy, that it would be a place of grace, that it would be a place that can display your kindness, that it could be a place where the love of Christ is known for families that are affected in such a way that they need to make use of this this home. Lord, we pray that our ministry to them would be a ministry of love, a ministry based in the gospel and putting on display the gospel, that it is sacrificial love, that there is nothing that we gain here on earth by serving them. Oh, but Lord, that they might know you, your goodness and your kindness, that they might even turn to you And so use Pillar Bible Fellowship in a great way to accomplish your purposes. Lord, we lift this to you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.